going and all the things that are vying for our attention and, and drawing us and pulling on us. And we have a break. We have a chance to focus on your word, to think about its calling on our lives. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this place where we can meet. And God, I thank you for these people that we can meet with. God, most of all, I thank you for your son, the the reason that we are here, the reason we have hope. And God, as I bring the sermon that I've been working on, I trust that the message you would have brought will come. I trust that will come in spite of my errors and my mistakes and where I stumble. Because I trust that your spirit dwells here among your people. The same spirit that raised Christ from the grave is here in us. And it's with faith that your word is true that I preach it today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we continue our study of the early church in Acts chapter 17. And today we're going to be, uh, instead of reading the whole passage, we're going to pull out half the passage as a focal passage. Um, But I encourage you sometime today, uh, maybe at halftime, I don't know, um, steal away and read the entire chapter. So we've been talking about different different settings of evangelism. We've been talking about different servants of God going into and bringing the word together. the good news of Jesus into people's lives. And we're continuing that today. We're looking at Paul. So this chapter begins with Paul arriving in Thessalonica. Man, I knew I was going to mess that up. I said it right a hundred times. And I knew I was going to get it wrong. Um, And there there was a synagogue. So anytime in in the... in the Old Testament and, and even now, when there's enough adult males that are Jewish in an area, a synagogue is established. And this is the first place that Paul goes to when he goes to a new place. Um, quite honestly, it's probably the place he's the most comfortable and the most familiar with. And so he goes there and, and some listened. Uh, a few even truly heard and believed. But the Jewish leaders were upset with Paul's message and plotted against Paul and drove him out. So Paul leaves town and travels to another place, Berea. 
where he finds another synagogue. And in this synagogue, he finds a much more receptive crowd that people are saying, okay, you're, you're talking, you're, you're pointing into the word and you're talking about, hey, Jesus is Christ and I can show you where the prophecies are and, and, and they're responding to that. But the folks from Thessalonica are still upset and they follow Paul and, and he is rushed away by boat. And apparently this, this happened so quickly, Paul fled so quickly that he left his companions, Silas and Timothy. So now we're going to pick up in verse 16 here. Now while Paul was waiting for them in, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him and he saw the city was full of idols. So I want you to pay note here. Notice Paul's response to seeing a city full of idols. He's provoked. He's angered. He's driven to action by this feeling that's being provoked. So what provokes you? Asked a different way, what angers you? We, as Christians, are to be provoked by different things than non-believers. We should, we should respond to being provoked in different ways. Look at James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear... Slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Does that describe you? Quick to speak, I'm sorry, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger? Now I could point at some of you and say, yeah, slow to speak may not describe you. And all of you could point at me and say, slow to speak does not describe you. This is something that we've got to strive for every day. We've got to be intentional about this. This is not normal behavior. The, the core of this verse is, where is your focus at? Is it on you and what you want, or is it on God and what He wants? You see, we are quick to speak because I want you to hear what I have to say. I'm quick to anger because I'm not getting what I want. And God's turning it around. He says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's what God wants. So all of a sudden, everything's upside down. But it's all about where your focus is. It's about God, not about you. Focus on God. You see, Jesus, is, Jesus shows us righteous anger. There are people who think of Jesus as uh, kind of a, a tender, kind of snowflake of a man who, you know, don't wanna, you don't wanna, he doesn't want to upset anybody. That is not the Jesus of Scripture. Jesus' righteous anger 
is directed toward the money changers in, in God's temple. And the reason for that is that they were in God's house defiling it and getting in people's way of worshiping him. It wasn't that Jesus felt personally offended. Look at all the things he didn't respond to. It was that his father's home, his house, his father's house where people came to worship him was being interfered with. It was God's glory that he, that angered him, that provoked him to anger. So let's think about our anger. My anger, your anger. Is it selfish or is it righteous? Are you provoked because you are harmed? Because you're inconvenienced? You know, our, our church is blessed with a lot of families that have little children. And I, I love kids. Um, some of them are not so little anymore. They're really grown up. But when our children aren't obedient, are you provoked? And, and are you provoked because you see a fellow believer who is not respecting the authority that God has placed in their life? And therefore driven to lovingly and caringly help direct that person to respect God and the authority that he's put in over them? Or are you angry because how dare you not obey me? How dare you mess my schedule up? I've got to get out of the house. As you can tell, this affects me personally. This is something I think most parents struggle with from one extent to the other. And we've got to be honest about it and turn this over to God. We've got to ask, God, show me when I'm being provoked in a worldly way and when I'm responding in a worldly way. Change me. Change my heart. <clears throat> you see the difference? You see how focus is what matters. Your focus is what will provoke you. So what's your focus? If your focus is you and your schedule and your time and your entertainment or your money, that's a problem. That's what the world focuses on. So what provokes you? What do you do when you're provoked? Now, this is radically different than the world around us. Look at the accusations that are, that are leveled against Paul in this very chapter in 17. It's verse 6. The, the accusation against him and, and, the, his, and the followers of Christ there is these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. The result of preaching in a fallen world is radical societal change. Christians should be so different that everyone else around them notices. Are we living radically different lives than our worldly neighbors? What does this radical difference look like? 
Well, for some, it means selling everything you own and traveling to a foreign country at great risk to yourself and your family. That's, that's what it looks like sometimes. But that's not what God calls all of us to do. But God calls all of us to radical, to be radically different in the world. You see, many times it's much less dramatic than this. Earlier this week, a, a believer, like many of us, uh, was sick and needed to go get some medical treatment. So this guy gets an appointment and arrives and is told that he's going to be seen in five minutes. About 15 minutes later, he's told that there's been a computer error and that he's going to have to, be, he's going to, have to wait to be seen. Over 40 minutes later, he is finally taken back to be treated. This guy's been here for over an hour now. He was told five minutes, over an hour. While speaking with a nurse, she asks him if he's been exposed to the flu. He mentions that, well, you know, I, I go to church and there's a lot of people at church who have been sick and I don't know what it is. It's probably the flu. Or it could be the flu. The nurse looks at him and says, oh, that explains why you were so patient when you had to wait. I knew there was something different. That explains it. You see, the nurse noticed that the man was somehow different because he wasn't provoked by the same things that would have provoked others. And he didn't respond in the same way as others would have responded in that situation. There was something different. Be different in what provokes you and how you respond when you're provoked. So let's look at Paul. What provoked Paul? It's these idols. These idols were all around him. It's often said about Athens that you will, that, that people would say it's easier to find a God in Athens than a man. There's so many idols everywhere, statues, everything. So, are we moved by others around us and their lack of faith? It's so easy to become inwardly focused as a Christian living in an ungodly world. We must resist this temptation and be moved by our compassion for those around us that do not know God. Ask God to open your eyes to the idols of our world, of our city. Ask Him to provoke you to action and ask Him to direct that action. But you're going to have to be willing to act before you pray this. Let me tell you. You've got to be careful what you ask God to do. Because He'll do it. And it'll radically change your life. Verse 17 shows us Paul's reaction to this provoked feeling that he has. It reads, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Paul shared the gospel. He was provoked to anger. He talked about God. He talked about Jesus. 
Right? He interacts with those that God places in his life with the intentional idea of creating disciples. Does this sound familiar? Remember the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20? And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, this is a side note. I didn't write this down. But how encouraging is it that Jesus is with us to the end of the age? It's amazing. So encouraging. Notice that Jesus calls us to make disciples, not converts. So what's the difference, you may ask? Well, they're huge difference. The difference is in relationship and in study and in growth and in love. You can convert someone without caring about them. But you have to love someone to disciple them. Regrettably, many evangelists today are looking for converts, not disciples. They're looking for a number, not a relationship. Paul Washer, um, who's a phenomenal preacher, he tells a story about he's on a campus and he's handing out tracts. He's a young man. One of the first, you know, he's not been evangelizing much, but he's on campus handing out tracts. And he hands a tract to, to somebody and, you know, you say a couple words to him as they walk by. Hey, you know, take a look at this. And the guy takes two or three steps and he stops and he turns back around and looks at Paul. And Paul's excited. Oh, I'm, I'm going to get to have a conversation about Jesus. It's good. And the man looks at him and says, do you want to be my friend? Or do you want me to convert to your faith? And it hit Paul. It hit him hard because he wasn't there looking for friends. He was looking for converts. And it made him realize very quickly that the way he was going about evangelism was, was not appropriate. And it took him aside. And, and this story should impact the way we think about how we share the gospel with those that God puts in our lives. Let's look back at chapter 17 and see how Paul continues to share the gospel. Verse 18. Some of these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him and said, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to... And again, it's another word I practiced and now I'm messing it up. 
Um, Aragopoulos, yeah, I'll go with that. Thank you, Pam. Um, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenian, Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. There's a lot of really interesting things going on here. So this place where they, they take him is like this center of thought. We really don't have anything like this in today's society. This is a very foreign thing for us. Some people would say, oh, it's like the university. No, it, it is nothing like the university. This is a place where people would come together and literally just all new things all the time. It, 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 rare, interesting, they would find people from other countries and, and people would even travel in, intentionally just to learn new things to come back and say, well, these people over here, they, look at what they worship. and look." So it's very different than anything we've got today. Uh, but some of the ideologies, some of the worldviews and philosophies are very similar to what we have today. So to, to kind of oversimplify this a little bit, the Epicureans, they were, they're very similar to today's scientists, specifically the, the atheistic scientists. They do not believe in God or that God affects people's lives. So they kind of held God as this thing out way out here in between planets, but nothing, nothing that actually affects us today. <coughs> and, and they didn't believe in an afterlife. Uh, they really believed that what you see is what you get, right? And, and they saw happiness, seeking happiness as the primary goal of their lives. For without anything greater than this life and what we see in it, one's life is reduced to having as much fun as possible until you die. Does this sound familiar? Many people today, particularly those in the entertainment industry and even educational institutions, teach some form of this philosophy. Look at pop music. Look at movies and, and culture, popular culture. That's what this is, right? Have fun. As long as you, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm just having as much fun as I can until I die. Well, when there is no God, there is nothing to live for but fun, happiness, and pleasure. That's just the way it works. So this path to pleasure is disastrous. And, and it leads to nothing but death and destruction. We should be careful to guard our lives and the lives of our children and the lives of our brothers and sisters against the ever-present threat presented by this worldview. But we should also pity those who are trapped by its seductive grip. This message of you should be happy has also 
kind of wormed its way into the church with a slight alteration. That alteration is, it says, God wants you to be happy. The first chapter of John, um, excuse me, of James, verse 17 tells us, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So yes, God blesses us immensely. Everything in your life that is good and perfect comes from Him. Don't doubt that. But to be clear, God loves us and wants what's best for us. And what is best for us is rarely that which makes us happy. The, the health and wealth prosperity doctrine is wrong and destructive. We are called to be like Jesus, like our Christ. The same Jesus who walked on this earth with almost no physical possessions. Jesus who was arrested and viciously beaten and eventually killed doing God's will. Every disciple except one died a tragic death. We need to stop equating worldly success with God's favor. It rains on the just and the unjust. Now, the Stoics of Paul's time could be compared to modern-day religions that believe that God is in all things. And the focus, you know, our focus should be on how we respond to the things that happen to us. Buddhism is a good example of this. Um, so is kind of New Age thinking. This is <clears throat> a much more pervasive mindset than you may think in modern society. Even some Christians are confused and misled by this line of thought. When you read a book or hear a speaker talking about God is everywhere and in all things, be careful. God is omnipresent, which means he's, he is everywhere. But starting to attribute divine attributes to rocks or trees or animals is often a way of watering down God or cheapening what it means to be created in his image as we, as people, as man and woman are. You should always be careful of false teaching and, and particularly when you hear anything that is equated with God or used in replace of God. So if you see God or other terms, uh, God and other terms, such as the universe um, or the divine, used interchangeably, that should start alarming you. you should, alarm bells should start going off and you should start getting your defenses up. You should be very careful. Paul had um, very little in common with these people. They would have had completely different cultures, their faiths, completely different belief systems. But he was not afraid to talk to them. 
He spent time with them. He doesn't tell us to the extent, but we can imagine him in a, a marketplace, right? A buzzing bazaar, people buying and selling and eating and, and talking, and he's in there in that kind of you know, mess of humanity hanging out, finding any opportunity he can to talk and to connect with people. He's engaging with people who are radically different than him, without fear. And because he's not afraid to do this, he's about to get an even larger audience. And this is often hard for us Christians. Kind of want to again start getting inwardly focused, right? And staying away from people that we know are different, hell different beliefs than we do. We shouldn't do that. We've got to follow the example of Scripture and bring the truth of the gospel to all nations. So let's pick up verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What, therefore, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed something, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feeling their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, each one of us, for In him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your prophets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art of and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So we have a little sermon here from Paul. And Paul points, uh, he's got some points that he makes in this sermon. He says, hey, um, first of all, he knew enough about these people to talk to them using comments about their own faith. 
Hey, you know that, that statue over there that says to the unknown God? Because these people were so scared of missing an altar, of, of dying or having a God show up. And, and they wanted to have the, the place that says the other. So they could say, no, no, we worship you. It's right over there. Right? But Paul knew this about them. He knew about their writings, what their poets had written. He knew their culture enough to interact with them. So Paul's points are, God is all-powerful. He, he is the all-powerful creator and does not need you, but you need him. This is a radically different thing. This is much more radical than it sounds now. right? To us in this room, this sounds like, okay, radical thing for them, radical claim. This is people who think, oh, I've got to keep this God happy with this sacrifice or this money or whatever because if he gets mad, he won't send the rain. Oh, and there's this other God who's in charge of the rocks and this other God who's in charge of the sea. And they have all these gods that all have their own little dominions and sometimes they overlap a little. It gets really confusing to try to keep up with all of them, but they try to. This concept of a single God who is all-powerful, created everything, and by the way, he doesn't need you to build a temple. It was radical to them. So he told them who God was. The second thing he points to is he wants God wants you to find him. And he is really close to you. He is not on some mountaintop, some mystery, you know, mystery mountaintop somewhere that man can't tread. God is right there. He is close to you. Closer than you ever imagined. And he wants you to find him. And, and you should seek him and repent because judgment is coming. He tells them, repent. Judgment's coming and it's going to be bad. So there's a quick side note here. That we see in this scripture, as we see throughout scripture, this great mystery of a sovereign God, all powerful, who makes allowance for man's choice. The creator and controller of everything is calling for all to repent, but some don't. There are many topics that lead to sincere and honest brothers and sisters having difficult conversations. And we should never shy away from these conversations or these topics. But we should always be ready to engage with our brothers and sisters on these hard topics prayerfully, respectfully, and humbly. Ready for God to teach us. So back to, to Paul's sermon. So he has presented to his audience who God is, the nature of God, the nature of man. And he is now talking about Jesus. He brings up Jesus. The one who defeated death can save you, he tells his audience. Now let's look at his audience's response. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, I will hear you again about this. 
So Paul went out from their midst. Paul's presentation, it appears to me, was cut short by his audience. He had gone too far. The idea of this death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was just too far, unacceptable. The very act that we as Christians see as our assurance is foolishness to the world. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now have you, so it shouldn't surprise us that Paul's audience said, oh, well, this is ridiculous. We're going to take this guy out. We're not, we're not listening to this anymore. Now, there were a handful of people that said, you know, it's interesting. I want to talk to you more about this later. So, have you ever had a conversation and long after it's done, you think, man, I should have said this or I should have said that. It's easy for us to do, especially with important conversations. Right? Important conversations like sharing the gospel and, and presenting the gospel. Man, I, I, maybe I would have been more successful if I had said this or if I had done that. Self-reflection can be good, but be careful not to use human understanding to define success in, spiritual, in the spiritual realm. We must be careful to define success individually and as a church in very limited ways. Like 1 Corinthians 3 teaches us, some plant, others water, still others reap. Verse 7 of that chapter says, so neither he who plants nor he that waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. God knows his will for our church and for your life. Seek His will and work. But know that God gives the growth. And we see in this last verse of the chapter that God is giving growth to this budding church of Athens. The church in Athens would go on to be the home of many great Christian thinkers and would, quite honestly, help the church spread the good news of Jesus Christ to the entire world, shaping theology forever. This is the power of God and the success that God lays. What man sees as foolishness, God sees as great wisdom.